Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini series on the off weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoyed this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to our Meet the Managers mini-series. This week, Robert Gardner is returning to the pod to interview Roberta Barr of The Value Team. Other than a nearly shared name, both Roberta and Robert have a shared passion for ESG investing. Since his last appearance on the pod, Rob has departed St. James's Place to start his new venture, Rebalance Earth, the world's first holistic natural capital solution. Their vision is to offset over a gigaton of carbon through nature-based solutions, protecting and improving biodiversity, and generating daily income for millions worldwide. They will achieve this by piloting several projects in the UK and worldwide that provide the flow of income for nature's ecosystem services. Roberta is the head of ESG Investing in the Value Team, and she joined Schroeder's as part of the grad scheme six years ago. In this episode, Rob and Roberta will discuss how Roberta and the team integrate ESG factors into the investment process, specifically when it comes to value investing, how the value team engage with companies on ESG issues, what tools or frameworks have been developed by the value team and Schroeder's to manage all ESG-related risks, including those on biodiversity, and finally, how biodiversity risks have played a significant role in the team's decision-making. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Rob Gardner, and I'm here today with Roberta Barr. She's a PM in the Portfolio Manager here at Schroeder's, but also the head of ESG for the value team. Uh, Roberta, great to meet you. Uh, I know you and I have a passion for sustainability, and we'll get into that in a moment. But look, how did you get here? How did you end up as uh, head of ESG for the, the value team here at Schroeder's? Great to be here with you as well, Rob. Really happy to be um, having this conversation today. So I guess my journey into um, the value team at Schroeder's and specifically into the sustainability world. So I studied maths at uni. I've always been good at maths. I've always loved maths. I've you know, loved the logic of it, the sort of rationality behind all the all the sort of frameworks that you put together. And sort of I, part of me wanted to stay in academia, to be honest, and stay a maths professor. But, you know, the harsh reality of the world meant that it was much healthier for me to move back to London and sort of find a way to make a mark in the corporate world. So I originally joined Schroeder's in the quantitative equity products team, which suited my math skills. I could code. I could understand their algorithms. Um, I certainly learned a lot in that team. But I was on the graduate program when I joined. And as part of that graduate program, you get different people from around the business. They come and they talk to you about what they do. And my graduate year was lucky enough to have Kevin Murphy, 
who's one of the co-managers of the value team, come and give us a real punchy 30-minute talk on value investing. And honestly, me and value investing, it was love at first sight. I saw it, I was like, yes, this is it. This is what I want to do. And um, so I sort of squeezed my way into the value team and the rest is history from there. I guess as well, I've always, always had quite a strong sort of passion for sustainability. And if I'm, if I'm totally honest, that was my only real reservation about value investing was that it didn't really necessarily sit well with sustainability. Yes, the team have always integrated ESG risks into their sort of valuation frameworks, but actually, you know, thinking about does this company have a net positive benefit to the world? That wasn't really something that was feeding into um, the funds and sort of what, what their remit was. Um, so I was very fortunate, I think, that my passion for sustainability sort of came at the same time that the industry got more and more interested in sustainability. So sort of having just been the person that was always a bit annoying going on about all these ESG issues, then I became the sustainability champion for the team, sort of informally, then formally, and went on to become the head of value ESG and sort of helped to set up, design, and now manage our sustainable value funds. Well, I'd love to, I'd love to unpack ESG and, and, and value investing. But before I do, we were chatting earlier and you're a keen runner, aren't you? So I am, can you yes. share the story about when you were, uh, I think you were in Australia, but go, why don't you t tell that story? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I did a comment on the uh, Sydney the Schroeder Sydney office uh, for six months or so. Um, and yeah, I was very fortunate there, obviously, that there's such beautiful nature, so many beautiful beaches that you can spend hours running up and down. But it really upset me that there was a lot of sort of plastic, a lot of debris left on the beaches and in the sea. And I sort of made it my mission to start trying to clean them up wherever I could. So what, turned, what started as sort of happy morning runs up and down the beaches is soon turned into me with a massive dustbin bag running up and down, collecting litter with, with locals looking at me like I was some sort of um, mad woman um, doing my thing. But, you know, it made me happy. And I like to think I did some very, very, very small uh, good in the world. Well, I mean, you'd certainly raise awareness about just how bad the kind of plastic issue is in our in our oceans. And, <laughs> and, and maybe we can come back to that. And I'm, for your Schroders colleagues listening, mm. is that Sydney secondment still available? Or is that, I mean, that must be really oversubscribed to take six months out and go to... Uh, to work in the Schroeder's office in Sydney? Yeah, to be honest, I think Schroeder's is, you know, it's got so many benefits to it. And one of that is that it's a global firm and it's got, it's got different offices in different locations. So there's a New York office, a Hong Kong office, Singapore office, um, Australian office. And it so happened that the Australian equities team and the way that they approach sort of fundamental analysis and looking at companies did align very nicely with sort of value investment style. So that's how I ended up in the, the Australian um, team. But certainly if it's something that you're interested in, then you know, Schroeder's is a great place to be. Well, it's, yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity. Yeah. Well, look, let's dive into ESG and value. And and before this, I, I was Director of Investments at, at St. James's Place, and I'd have this discussion with my kind of value colleagues, which was, oh, it's great that we're doing all of this responsible investing, all of this ESG, but value and ESG, they're just not compatible. I mean, what What's your thoughts on that? How, you know, can you kind of dissect both, both sides of the argument? Yeah, um, so firstly, I would sort of highlight that I strongly disagree with the statement that um, value vesting is incompatible with sustainability. You know, the fact that we've got a sustainable value fund up and running and traders wouldn't put a fund forward that they didn't think was a great investment proposition. 
hopefully shows that, you know, we've at least managed to square that circle or circle that square, whatever the expression is. But why would people think that? Why do you think people think that maybe it's only something that you can do with quality companies? Yeah. Why do people even have that sort of premise in the first place? So I think sort of having, having looked around, there are sort of two main arguments that I see. And one of them is a bit of a top-down argument and it's saying, well, actually some of the most attractively valued companies out there today in sin sectors, so tobacco stocks or thermal coal stocks or, you know, um, sort of dirty stocks, if you will. And you know, as a value investor, you're meant to not really care about what a company does, you're just meant to care about valuations. And if you're a sustainable investor, then you can't hold those sin sectors. So if you're a sustainable value investor, then you won't be able to hold some of the most attractively valued companies out there. So you're going to miss out on some degree of performance. And you know what, you know, Academically, that's totally correct. We all know that as soon as you start to reduce your opportunity set, then you're instantly reducing your potential for outperformance. That's, you know, maths, it's logical. It definitely makes sense. But I think it's so important that, you know, that's not over-exaggerated. I think we, we ran a few um, sort of model portfolios that were sort of replicating a value portfolio back 30 years. And we saw that a totally unconstrained value portfolio that could go anywhere into any industry that it wanted that outperformed the market by, I, I, I'm going to mess on the numbers a bit, but it was something like 5.2%. If you took that same portfolio and you applied a whole host of exclusions, so you know, no thermal coal, no oil and gas, no utilities even, no tobacco, no alcohol, no gambling, you name it, it was excluded, that outperformed by 5.0%. So, so yes, there's a, there is a, a loss that you make, but actually, you know what? In the long in the long term, that's a pretty insignificant difference, and um, I think you know what what it really highlights is that value investing is so much more than just those insects. There are so many, especially today, other exciting undervalued companies out there where you can still sort of tap into that value premium whilst not having to to um, go against your sustainability beliefs. And I suppose there's two parts, right? There's the stock selection. So you're saying that you know narrow opportunity set. But the but the other part is kind of engagement, right? Once yeah. you're invested in these companies, you know you're not, I, you know I, I don't know how many stocks you might hold, but I imagine not many. So your opportunity to engage with the executive teams, to what extent can you drive further value through engaging with those companies on on those ESG issues? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's certainly one that we've thought about a lot. I think what we say for our value fund is that you know what all of the alpha that comes from our portfolios comes from this being a value portfolio. Any additional alpha you might get through engagement, which we certainly do in the fund, is additional. But that's not our promise. Our promise is that you're going to get the value premium. I think having said that, you know, we do engage with every company that we hold in the fund. We only hold the ESG leaders. So these are very much engagements to make these companies absolutely top sustainability company in the industry. And you do see positive changes there. So you see things like, you know, increased board diversity. We've had increased uh, board independence as well. We've seen things like companies strengthen up their net zero targets, companies strengthen up their su supply auditing, their supply chain auditing. And these are all changes which, you know, they might seem a little bit small, perhaps, to the, to the outside world. But actually, you know, as investors, we know that stakeholder management is key to the long-term success of companies. Appropriate, responsible, sustainable stakeholder management is absolutely crucial. And so whilst it might seem like a sort of small win today, actually my belief is that when we make these positive changes and we help to move these companies towards being more responsible companies, then actually hopefully that will have a long-term 
benefit to uh, the company's profitability. Having said that, that's not something that we promise. That's just, that would be a nice, a nice extra. And look, I'd love to, you know, maybe pick out some uh, example companies just from the universe. Uh, but before we do, I'd, you know, let's talk about ESG. I think before going into lockdown, Peter Harrison, CEO of Schroders, was talking about how ESG was here to stay five yeah. years now from now. No one will be talking about ESG. Mm. It will just be part of everything. Uh, three years on, that statement doesn't look to be true. I share Peter's same view, but... Uh, ESG has become a bit of a culture war. It has been, certainly in the US, it has been politicized, even to an extent in the UK. As someone who invests around the world, but also I'm guessing has global investors in your fund, can you paint a picture of the map that is where people sit on that spectrum? Is it here to stay or actually it's going to get blown out the way? And I suppose three to five years from now, you know, how do you see the marketplace emerging? Yeah, I mean, personally, I have full confidence that it's here to stay. I think, like all of these things, it takes time, it's difficult, it's an ugly argument in some areas. As you say, it's been really politicised, it's become really divisive. People often cherry-pick certain things and use that to really, you know, undermine someone else's someone else's belief or, you know, what they're saying. But actually, I think that as the industry moves on, as different people come into the industry, we were talking about this earlier, but you were saying, you're making the great point that actually it's the millennials of today who are going to be the CEOs of tomorrow. And as we see the the people who have got those assets to invest, becoming the people who today are making all the noise about climate change, biodiversity, you name it, then actually that's going to begin to drive the money, I I believe, into into more sustainable areas. But I don't think that's a, a tomorrow thing. I think that's a sort of slow slow burn. So if you were to cut through the media noise, what is it that gives you that confidence? Obviously, as a mathematician and a value investor, what are, as you look around, what are the sort of fact patterns that give you the confidence to say, I, I think it's here to stay? So, so two things. Firstly, when we speak to clients, clients who before have been you know, very adamant that they're not, not interested in sustainability, don't care about it at all. Is suddenly suddenly they are interested. Suddenly they do want to have that conversation. And yes, you know, we'll approach it from a what can this do in terms of financial uh, gains. But you know, they're they're listening to their clients in turn probably, and they they are hearing that this is more and more important to people, not just making a return, but actually how you're making that return. And ultimately, you know, we are a service provider, right? We're we're providing the population, pension funds, you name it, with a way to invest their money. And if they say they want to do that sustainably, then that's that's our you know duty to do that. So there's the client side that we're seeing the sort of increased demand. And then when we speak to companies as well, that's also really interesting because companies in the past where you, know, you bring up sustainability with the CEO and you get a sort of, you know, a tut almost of what are you doing? You know, actually now they've all got sustainability divisions. They all know that they need to start doing, you know, TCFD reporting, for example, or having having their own impact reports. You know, SDGs have come in, which has really helped to sort of make companies actually begin to think about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, and actually, you know, when we engage with companies today, for example, in Japan, where previously there's been this perception that Japan 
uh, is very behind when it comes to some sort of corporate governance standards that we might expect from European peers. Actually, now they're working with us. They're saying, yes, what do you think we should do? This is what our plans are. We're going to accelerate this. We're going to accelerate that. You know, we're trying to put together our biodiversity policy. What have you seen our global competitors do, which we should do as well? And, you know, they're, they're selling really constructive conversations that you're having. I think that's, you know, it's been a slow but gradual shift. And I think is the right shift that needs to happen for you know, for the changes that we need. And and just for those who are listening who are maybe not as familiar with the ESG landscape, uh, can you just give an overview of some of the big sort of regulatory changes that are happening, everything from fund labelling in the UK, uh, fund disclosure in Europe, you know, what the SEC is going to do with corporates in terms of their disclosure. Yeah. I, I suppose what to me appears like a hidden rising tide of disclosure and standards. Can you sort of paint an overview for those of us and the listeners who were not immersed in this world? I mean, the overview, I guess, would be that whatever I say today will probably be outdated by the time this podcast comes out. It's all moving very fast. Different companies are in different places. Europe and the UK are pretty far ahead when it comes to sustainability, when it comes to climate change, but also when it comes to things like sort of social inclusion, for example. Japan has always been ahead when it comes to social inclusion. And, you know, with their aging population, that kind of makes sense. All the companies are focusing on what they can do for their society, but they've always been a little bit behind probably in corporate governance. But that's, you know, beginning to change now. They're being told that actually capital allocation by cross shareholdings isn't necessarily the best thing for shareholders. Um, in America, gosh, in America, it's become incredibly divisive climate change. And I think it'd be so interesting to see actually where that goes from a regulatory perspective. And then, so other countries, you get different things. I was actually on a... Um, uh, on a webinar this morning in South, uh, with South African uh, clients talking about their sort of South African net zero journey and the regulations that are coming in, how that's going to work. Obviously, that's got a huge sort of just transition piece alongside it. And actually, you, know, you can you can feel the, the nervousness, but also the excitement amongst amongst these clients. And, and just closer to home, the FCAs come out with their, yes. their fund labels. What, what, what would be the fund label that describes your fund... Uh, yeah. just to help sort of position that? Yep, so we're hoping for sustainably uh, focused. Okay, and what does that mean for someone who might not know the, the, the FCA labels? I think it means that a certain proportion, I don't even know the certain proportion because all of our all of our holdings are this, but a certain proportion have to be sustainable investments. So they've got to have something about them which makes them good for the environment, for society or for so on. So hence the, the, the sort of sustainable leaders in each in each kind of category when, when you hold them. Exactly. And I, I suppose just before diving into the, the specifics of, of the companies, uh, you mentioned the SDGs earlier, which is the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, and you, it is climate change that is quite divisive. And, and you've mentioned biodiversity, something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, again, Peter Harrison, the CEO, talks a lot about natural capital and the work that, that Schroders are doing in that space. Can you give again an overview of what is happening in biodiversity? Talk about TNFD, what does that mean for companies? And I suppose three to five years from now, what does that mean when it comes to sort of understanding your, your biodiversity risk? Of course. So I think if we look back at climate change, and it's always been focused on carbon emissions. And we've had the SBTIs come out, and that's sort of showing companies what they need to do to reduce their scope one, two, and three emissions. We're all pretty familiar with that now. But what's sort of coming down the pipeline strongly is biodiversity, and actually people recognizing that climate change 
yes, it's you know, climate uh, carbon emissions are a big part of that. But you know what? So is so is biodiversity and all the different facets uh, within that. I think historically biodiversity has just been sort of equal to deforestation. That's what people have always thought of. You know, biodiversity equals deforestation. I think what's becoming more and more clear is that. Yes, deforestation is a huge part of biodiversity, but you know what? There are so many other sort of important factors which, yes, are maybe related to deforestation, but are going to play a huge part as well. And actually the reporting standards around some of those things is really lacking. Some of the um, sort of labels, the certifications that companies can get to say, you know, yes, all of our palm oil is um, traceable, certified and so on. You know, those are being shown to not necessarily be as stringent as we might like. There's also a huge amount of stats out there like, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but it's a, a really small percentage, you might even know this, of soy is actually responsibly sourced today. And the challenge that companies have uh, procuring sustainably sourced soy, which might not even be as sustainable as we think in the first place, is a, is a challenge in itself. So it's a, biodiversity is a much messier, I guess, thing. And then scope one, two and three emissions and they're messy enough as it is, but it's increasingly becoming more and more important and increasingly, well, we, we do expect all of our companies held in the sustainable fund to, to, to meet a certain threshold when it comes to biodiversity. And so and TNFD, uh, the Task Force for Nature Related Financial Disclosures is coming out in September of, of this year, 2023. Uh, how ready do you think the companies in your portfolio are on that journey? Are they aware it's coming down the track? Are they asking you for advice on how to do that? Are they building the capacity in their teams to, to understand what does it mean for their business? Yeah. So basically, at the end of last year, we asked ourselves that very question. And we said, which of the companies that we hold are most exposed to biodiversity risks? And where are they in being ready to to begin to you know, report on that and meet those standards? Um I think the companies that we hold, the ones that we're most worried about, we've we've seen significant progress in, and we actually think they'll probably be in a good place today. You've got you know companies like Henkel who use a lot of palm oil, but are increasingly moving to to use sustainable palm oil by their own standards and, and external standards. We've got companies like um, Pearson who are moving towards Pearson Plus model, and they're also saying that uh, so Pearson Plus just to just to be more clear is um, their digital first notebooks which you know, firstly makes education more accessible so that's a great thing for society but also it means that all these textbooks aren't being printed every year just to be you know put on a dusty shelf somewhere or thrown away um so they're moving to that sort of digital model and they're also saying that all of the paper is going to be uh, certified to sustainability standards so it's those sort of initiatives that we look for for companies you know, removing the risk in the first place but also making sure that remaining risks they have are reduced we have a few telecom holdings as well within the fund, and there is quite a big differential there between European companies like Orange, who are you know, very much on it when it comes to biodiversity. You know, their policies around it are pretty good, but actually I think they're best in class, and you know, they've been thinking about it for a long time, versus a company like KDDI, which is a sort of Japanese equivalent of Orange, um, who are still working on their biodiversity policy, and that's something that we're watching very closely, and you know, we have actually been pointing them towards various parts of Orange's a biodiversity policy for you know what we see as best best in class and what we would expect from them as a sustainable leader. So what are the biodiversity risks of a telecom company then? Just to bring that out, yeah. what, why the difference and why is it that Orange are on it and what have they done to kind of be ahead of the curve? So I guess there are there are a lot of different parts. One of the main things is the sort of raw materials that go into a lot of their products, I guess, um, a lot of their services. 
and is the sourcing of those materials can be really detrimental um, to, to nature. So what we like is to see a sort of a good degree of uh, supply chain auditing to make sure that there's you know, responsibility within their supply chains. So initiatives like the JAC, we think are great. They bring together all of the, well, they bring together um, industry players within the telecom industry and they give them a voice together. So actually, you know, together they, they can have quite a lot of influence over the supply chain. Whereas if it was just one of the companies going to the supply chain, they could, you know, quite easily be ignored. We also like to see things like what are they doing about bringing back old phones and sort of contributing to that circular economy part of the argument as well. You know, we don't we don't like to see them just as soon as, you know, if they make a device, if that goes to a customer, then it's not their problem anymore. What we want to see is a, um, a, a way to incentivize customers to return those devices and then the company actually um, making sure that they use those returned uh, devices to either make new products or to... Um, appropriately recycle them. So a big part of, I'm guessing, performance in the future will come from companies adopting a much more circular approach. I mean, yeah. you're talking about a circular economy here. Yeah. And I think, you know, less than 10% of companies yeah. uh, have really started thinking about it. Yeah. So how do you engage with a company, maybe not Orange, but another one on these issues? Well, so one company actually that we that um, I think does a whole load of good when it comes to the circular economy is eBay. So that's, I think, a company that's often been forgotten about as uh, it hasn't, you know, been one of those fan companies. But actually, when you look at them and when you look at what they do, what they're doing is they're creating this platform where anyone, regardless of their tech skills, regardless of their financial background, their education levels, they can go on and they can sell on their used goods or they can buy other people's unwanted goods. Actually, the service that that is providing to society, I think is, I think eBay are only beginning to sort of capitalise on that and actually advertise that. And it kind of comes back to your previous point about Oh, your previous question around where the industry is going. I think when you start seeing marketing like that from eBay, with them really targeting um, their, their customers saying, this company is actually really good for biodiversity, really good for the circular economy, that's a, a good indicator as any that, you know what, the world is beginning to care about these things and we are beginning to move in those in those directions. But as you say, eBay was a, sort of a bit of a darling from 20 years ago, got sort of for, not forgotten, but left yeah. behind by the, by the fangs. So... That's actually more of an opportunity than a risk. Do you think they saw that, or is that through engagement, or a bit of a bit of both? I, to be honest, I think they saw it. I think one of eBay's problems was that they went into too many other areas that weren't a sort of core marketplace business. They got overexcited, tried to overexpand, um, and actually, what, what they're doing today and what we really like about the company is they're bringing it back to basics. They're bringing it back to that that marketplace business, and they're you know disposing of those supplementary uh, parts and they're focusing you know, solely on what they're good at. And I think I think that was the company seeing it as the financial opportunity that it is. And just as you sort of fast forward, you know, how do you see things sort of three to five years from now, either from an investor perspective and a company perspective? I'm guessing Peter's point was, you know, ESG shouldn't be a word. So I'm guessing there shouldn't be a head of ESG <laughs> for the value team. It, do you share that view or... or you know, will effectively it be embedded in everything? And and maybe we can talk a little bit about sort of the idea of impact-weighted accounts and sort of Ronald Cohen's ideas in yeah. terms of reporting and disclosure. Yeah. Um, so I think ESG has been around for a long time, right? It's not something that's just, just started. And you know, the value team's always integrated ESG risks into its, its financial analysis because at the end of the day, they're investment risks. And that's a really important part of understanding companies. So 
I mean, ESG has been around a long time. I think what will change probably over the next three to five years is as those regulations you talked about come through and actually being more clear about what the funds are running, what the companies are holding, whether they are sustainably driven, whether they're sustainably focused, you know, actually what is what is your fund? So it's, it's going to be less about um, do you integrate ESG and it's going to be more about what are you doing? I mean, just to sort of push the point a bit, and this is my experience of meeting all kinds of portfolio managers over the years, is this kind of concept of single materiality and double materiality. Mm. And so if you think about it, TCFD is a single materiality, i.e. what is the exposure of my business to climate change, yeah. as opposed to what damage or what negative externality is my business having on climate change. And you know, if I was to push sort of portfolio managers and analysts behind the scenes, they don't see climate change as their problem. They like their stocks, they analyze their companies. So they're worried about the risk and impact on the financial performance. Yeah. Not to what extent is this company contributing positively or negatively. Yeah. My personal view is you're going to see that huge demand shift and regulation will force double materiality. And therefore, how does how does that how does that change things, either from the way investment teams think about it, right the way through to how do executives at the companies you invest in think about it? Yeah. So I don't know how much you or our listeners sort of know about it, but Schroders has got a proprietary sustainability tool called SustainX, which is doing exactly that. It takes all the positive and negative social environmental externalities of companies and it puts dollar values against them. And you end up with the overall social value of a company. So that's the overall, you know, expense that the world, uh, the company should be paying the world for the damage that it's doing through carbon emissions, through fresh water usage, um, through not paying appropriate tax, or alternatively, as the net annual benefit that actually the world should be paying the company for the good that it does through, you know, paying people above living wage or provision of medicines, provision of power. So that's such a useful sort of starting point for us uh, when it comes to um, what are those sort of extra externalities of a company. And actually, is what uh, Schroders ended up using for our SFDR, Article 6, Article 8, Article 9, for those definitions. So I think it was used heavily for saying whether or not a fund is Article 8, we use SustainX as the sort of basis for that, which I think sort of really highlights just how important actually those externalities are when you're thinking about if you are sustainable or not. And I would argue that some of those externalities, yeah, they're not reflected on the PL statements today, but I don't think that's going to last forever. At the moment, there's this big cost going to the world and, you know, things can't go on forever. Something, someone's going to have to pay eventually. And I would suggest that that cost should move away from increasing inequalities out there socially. And we should actually start to bring that back to who's actually causing the damage in the first place. And I think some of the regulation that we've seen coming through, some of uh, behaviours from populations, some government's sort of political stances as well, is all beginning to move hopefully in that direction. And I think that'd be so interesting to see actually the way that SustainX looks at it is it takes those um, externalities as a percentage of revenue. So that is very much, you know, aligned with a profit margin, for example. It's saying, you know, what is the additional or detrimental profit margin to a company? Which is what Sir Ronald Cohen was exactly. kind of exactly. arguing in his book. Impact. So is that available? To, can someone log onto your website and see that? Or is that very proprietary, inside out? Uh, so this is way above my pay grade, Rob. Um, okay, I, I know that it is currently kept within the business. Some clients can see it. It's definitely in our reports. We give some high-level numbers. 
other conversations I am so, not. But, but just to understand, what you're saying is I could take various oil and gas companies and I could feed in $50 a tonne or 100 euros a tonne and say, what does that do to the business model? Which which companies are better or worse? So even if you took BP, Shell, and Exxon, they would still fare differently, even though they're in the same sector. If you were to change the price of carbon, is that is that what is that the sort of thing that is the that, tool does? that sort of idea? But it's also it's not just looking. We we have a sort of specific tools for carbon as well. But the beauty of Sustainex is that yes, it will take things like carbon, which are already you know pretty well documented. But it's also taking things like you know the just transition, what's actually the, the cost of the communities and so on. And it's feeding, and, and also on the other side of it, what is the benefit of power provision and actually you know, taking that away is going to have a detrimental impact on society too. But I think that's what's so nice about sustainability is it takes the negative and it takes the positive. And you're not just, I think one of the sort of issues with SDGs is that you can get really sort of laser focused on one particular point and the good that that's doing but it might be at the detriment of another SDG. And I think what Sustainex does a great job of is actually, you know, these are the good, these are the bad. Is the good worth it for the bad that's happening at the same time? And and here's the nuance of ESG. Here's yeah. the nuance of invest. No, no company's going to be perfect, yeah. but it's how do you how do you weigh all of these things up? And so when when your clients invest, uh, obviously your clients want to know about the return, the risk, the tracking error. Uh, what what sort of reporting are people able to see or asking now on the non sort of financial performance or on the stuff that we're talking about now? Yeah, um, it's hugely increasing um, with time. So they want to see for, for basics, carbon measures about the fund. Increasingly, they're also wanting to see other other measures. So, you know, so we're always asked about engagements, we give our engagement logs, we give our voting logs, which I think are quite a good indication of, you know, the work we're doing behind the scenes with companies. But I believe that Increasingly, there's going to be other metrics which are just you know, need to be included, like, for example, when the Task Force for Nature comes out with their, their disclosures. And just sort of stepping back and sort of looking sort of 10 years ahead, how would, how would you like to see sort of financial markets evolve? Can financial markets be a force for good? Paint, you know, paint your rosiest picture of how you'd like to see the market and what do you think it takes to get us there? My rosiest picture would absolutely be that, you know, the externalities are zero. So companies recognise the good and the bad that they do on their own P&L statements. Hopefully in 10 years' time as well, by that point we're, what, 2033, you know, a lot of 2030 net zero goals should be coming in and actually that transition should be well underway by that point, which I think will be really quite exciting to see when, you know, there's a lot of promise technologies, a lot of promises out there. And, you know, what I really want to see is those sort of coming in and I guess then my job as a sustainable investor will become, it will only evolve, right? Because you're going to start achieving certain things, but at what cost? There's going to be other issues that come up. And I think, I think it's quite exciting, you know. I, I realise I live in a very, uh, so I'm I can get very it, carried away. I'm going to flip it on its head then and say, so in your nightmare world, what, what, what could it look like 10 years from now? What could be, uh, yeah, the nightmare scenario? I think my, the nightmare scenario would be nothing's changed. I mean, it could get worse as well, which wouldn't be even more of a nightmare. But for me, if nothing changes, that's a fail, right? I think change is needed and change is happening, which is great. But that only needs to accelerate. Um, what do you think? No, it's, well, I, I, I share the, the, the sort of positive view, but I, I'm also grounded in the reality that it, it, it could go slow down. It could go backwards. 
I, I certainly felt a little bit bearish on the direction of travel about, you know, about a year ago. Mm. And, you know, that 2024 is a big election year and, and you know, politics is all powerful and, 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 and could certainly slow things down and potentially reverse things. But I, as, as we were mentioning earlier, I think the demographic forces, yeah. I think, will be the disruptive force. And so I think time... I think it will be bumpy, but I think time will play out as, as we mentioned earlier, the, these kind of millennials come through as the people born in the 2000s come through. They have a, the companies they work for. So I think there's going to be a war for talent where they save their money, where they borrow their money from, where they spend their money and where they invest their money will ultimately drive that. That's my my thesis. But I, I also recognize that it could be wrong. Now, obviously, this podcast series is part of the broader value podcast series, which is normally about decision making. What's your favorite decision making tool that's helped you make good investment decisions? My favorite decision making tool? Yeah, you can have more than one. I'll, I'll, be, so, I'll be generous. Well, well, how do you think about, I, I don't know, either risk and return or trying to weigh up these nuances? No. You know, a, the big theme of the podcast is, is speaking to people in the industry and value investors about, yeah, frameworks, decision-making, yeah. and, you know, at the end of the day, all of this is about compounding good decision-making. Absolutely. So first of all, I like to put numbers on things. Even if that's just in my own head, I like to probability weight things and I like to put numbers on them. It's just the way I work. And I also like to review those numbers in a sort of Bayesian way. So when I when I review an investment case, I'll look at it and I'll think, actually, you know, given what I know now, what's changed on those things? So I guess I like to put structures around it. What the value team loves doing, and I love doing as well, is having a checklist. So we have a checklist approach to our investment process. And you know, I don't know if you've read the checklist for Manifesto, but yeah, yeah, of course, of course you have. Yeah, I just love it. Like, I think I think that's such a robust way to go about actually thinking about what we're doing. And as a value investor, you're so predisposed to a huge host of you know behavioral biases. You know, you're doing what everyone else hates, but also at the same time, you want to be a contrarian. So you're you're kind of stuck in the middle here. And I. I think as a sustainable um, value investor, yes, you're being contrarian against the majority of value investors, but then you're also sort of aligning yourself with a lot of the rest of the market. So you're in a sort of interesting position. I think what I what works best for me is I put numbers on things, I write it all down, I make my lists, I go to sleep, I go on a big run, and then I then I make my decision. That is great advice. And look, last time I was on this podcast, I got asked this question, so I'm going to have revenge. What's your favorite book or podcast that you've read in the last year that you think every listener should go and listen to or read? Right, so I'm going to be a bit, I knew this question was coming and I you know, I went through all my favorite books, I went through everything. I thought, oh gosh, I don't, I, which one? How many uh, to choose from? And I, I'm going to go a bit rogue and say, actually, what I think is one of the best learning sources out there is Wikipedia. And I think they call it the doom scroll uh, with millennials when they're going through, you know, social media or whatever, and you end up looking at your phone for hours. I think if you just translate that instead to Wikipedia, which is what I do, and you end up sort of hours clicking through links and learning about all different sort of historical events that happened or different people and what they did, you can learn so much, I think. Um, I just, I love it as a website. I love it as a as a concept and I think that through that you can learn as much as you can learn through books and uh, podcasts too. I love that answer yeah. and I, I, I actually contribute to the Wikipedia page because I think it's, it's brilliant and yeah. uh, it's great that we have that resource. Well look, uh, Roberta, it's been great to do this podcast. I've loved every minute of it. Uh, thank Me you too. very much. Thank you, Rob. It's been a, my pleasure. <laughs>